0: So today we come to the end of our series, this claim of thrones. Why the claim? I know we, it's funny. I've, I thought about that. I look back at my first message. And I never really explained that. We'll actually explain it completely at the end of the message today. But the claim really comes the same, it's because Satan is doing everything within his power to corrupt, distract, and even destroy the faith of Christ's servants. I thought about starting with a cute story today, but I've done that, been there, done that. There's a lot to cover today, so we're going to jump right into the text and I'm breaking every rule that I ever learned in preaching class. So um, uh, we're going to just jump in and, and start right off this morning. If you're joining us this morning for the first time, welcome. Um, you are uh, in the midst of the very end of a message series, and it's probably when you're going to go, wow, what a great Sunday to come on the first time. Um, we're, we're talking about the church at Laodicea, um, the church that's probably talked about more than any other in the Bible, um, and never in a positive way, because there's not a whole lot Real positive to say about it. It was a church with real problems. It was a church just like us that had a lot of issues. And um, we see this foreshadowing of many of the issues the church as a whole, and I say that literally around the world, glo- the globe has, and the many congregations, including ourselves, have. And the interesting Jesus knows our deeds, and he knows our actions. The church at Ephesus, the first church we talked about, abandoned their first love. Smyrna dealt with enduring persecution and poverty. Pergamum was uh, belittled by false teachers and swayed in that sense. Thyatira, corrupted by sexual immortality, Sardis was dead in their faith. Philadelphia, the only real positive, the only bright spot, was, were faithful and had an open door to evangelism. And then we jump into the last church mentioned here. And interesting enough, if you look through the rest of Revelation, the imagery changes. From this point on, it, on it is not about the church. It is about the future. It is about what we see from chapter 4 on. It is about what we see God is talking about in the future. But he ends with this idea of what he expects and wants from his church, his body of Christ on the earth. Many of these churches have been commended. Some of them have been reprimanded in many ways. So to some, Jesus' words came as words of praise. To some, they came as condemnation. But to each one, He gave them a second chance. Because I wholeheartedly believe that God is a God of second chances. Or you and I wouldn't be here today. The setting for Laodicea is a little different. If we were going to place it in today's world, it would probably be in sunny Florida or Arizona. Okay? Why? Because it was the perfect place to retire It had beautiful views, beautiful sights. They had it all. They had hot springs. They had a medical center. They had commerce. They had shopping galore. They had an amazing textile industry of black wool and a huge banking center. I mean, come on. And if you take that setting and put it in Miami Beach or Naples, that would be today. This area was rich beyond measure. And I say beyond measure the church specifically was mentioned no specific sin it wasn't you have this problem or this problem or this problem but it was the entire problem it wasn't heresy or persecution they were foolish and they literally had fallen into the trap of the world and they allowed the world to seduce them and to overcome their thinking and their mindset as in each one of these studies we've looked at the picture of Jesus that it's held here in these verses and today's no different. I have my little tiny print Bible, so I'm not going to read a lot from it. It's on my notes, so I'll pull over a little bit, but I forgot my large print one. Yes, my large print Bible. And home, I'm getting older. It seems much easier to read. But the picture we see in verse 14 of the Bible is this. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, you and I, when we hear the word amen, what do we normally think of? We think of the end of a prayer, right? When we say that, it's an affirmation that what we say, we know will come true. So if you're praying for someone that's sick, praying for someone that's in the hospital, praying for someone who needs help because of distress or grief or emotion, you're praying in a way to God that you affirm that He has heard your prayers and that that will happen, that God will answer may not happen. It may not answer it in the way you want it to, but he, God will answer your prayers. It's an affirmation. It's an affirmation when you say amen in the middle of a sermon. And you are allowed to say that, by the way. Not quietly. Amen. Okay? okay, you're allowed to say that out loud. It won't make me preach any longer, at least after the first five or six, okay? Um, but you're allowed to say that. Why? Because it's an affirmation to what you hear me say you hold us true an affirmation. Jesus here is affirming himself. Before he even starts to talk to the last church, he's affirming that what he is about to say is faithful and it's true. He is the faithful and true witness. He is who he says he is. And in Jesus, we can be sure of what we hope for, certain of what we see or we do not see. He never wavers. He never lies. He is the truth. And his truth is the amen. It is final. It is the affirmation of truth. And he is also, it says, the beginning of God's creation. Now, the word here actually is the beginner of God's creation. And you may go, oh, that's kind of strange. Look back to Genesis 1.1. We were created in their own image. Jesus was there. How do we know that? Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Maybe this will help you understand this verse. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. Here it is, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Before, in the middle, and after, he is the amen. Amen? He is everything. And as he starts to talk about this, this is exactly where he's going. In other words, church, listen up. You may not like what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyways. And if anybody has the right, Jesus had the right verse 15, the very first part of that, he says, I know your works. This has been a reminder in every one of these letters to the churches that Jesus knows what's happening, not just in the churches in Asia, but he knows what's happening in the church today. He sees what we do. He sees what we say. He sees what we look at. Jesus knows what you are doing. He sees our works. He's not looking on us with a blind eye. He knows what's happening. And he tells the church, here's the problem. In 15 and 16, these are not easy words to hear. If you were a church, you probably would listen and go, man, I, I don't want to hear this. Or you would hear them the first time and you would write them off and forget them. But here's what he says. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot would that you would be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Ouch. Those are harsh. Now, the imagery to them may have been clearer than it is to us today. Before we go any farther, let's understand the depth of these words. The word cold there. It's literally the Greek word. I don't like to do this a lot, but it's psychos, psychros, which means icy. It's like one degree beyond freezing. It, you know what I mean um, if you're one of those people that likes frozen Cokes? You know, you drink them too fast, so what happens? Well, you get brain freeze, don't you? It's that cold. It's, it's that sensation that you don't like. It's beyond cold. If you walked outside yesterday, it was a beautiful day. It was sunny. We decided we'd take a walk we took a walk without gloves, and the wind started to blow, and it was like, man, it may look like it's beautiful, but it was cold. That's what he's talking about. Think you were cold or hot. The word zestos literally means boiling to the point, literally, of becoming gas. Seething is another word that could be used here. I wish that you were hot or cold, cold or hot. Interesting enough, the word used for boiling there is typically almost used in the sense of more for the passions of men than in any other word in the Scriptures. Today's younger generation understands this idea much better than we do. When, we was, when I was younger, we had you know, motorcycle riding, we had dirt riding, you could ride dirt bikes. Now they have the X Games. Now they have extreme sports. It's not, you know, you don't just ride on a dirt track. You have to flip your motorcycle up, die down like four times. I still don't know how you practice that. I, I just don't get that. Or you do that in skiing. Or you do that on snowboarding. or You do that on, name it, you do it now. Everything is extreme. You don't just do a sport. You have to do an extreme sport. Why? Because it's the opposite ends of the spectrum. It's, it's like beyond measure. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling the church. I want you to be extreme in your faith. I don't want you to be in between. I don't want you to be status quo. And the real problem comes in is this, that you can't make an outward difference until you're different on the inside. You can't. The truth behind being lukewarm is is the sense that I don't like lukewarm stuff. And my guess is most of you are the same way. I've talked about this before. I, I don't like cold coffee. I'll drink it ice now. I have gotten a little bit more sophisticated in my taste buds. Okay? But I like it hot. I like it really, really cold. I don't like lukewarm coffee. I like cold iced tea. We're at the restaurant the other day, The lady and my iced tea's doesn't have much ice in it. I said, Can you bring me a glass of ice? And she looks at me like, yeah. I mean, I My guess is if you like iced tea, you like iced tea. If I want my tea hot, I'll order it hot. When Dee puts something in the microwave, I said, can you put that bag in for 30 to 45 more seconds just for me? I know I'm a pain, but I like it hot. Laodicea understood that. Jesus is using illustrations that they got. They understood. They had no internal water supply in the city. Their water came from the mountains and Colossae. Where the ice would melt, and as it would melt and turn into water, it was beautiful, crystal clear, freezing cold water in the mountain streams. And it was carried some nine miles through aqueducts to the city. And as it was, what happens? They weren't filtered aqueducts. They weren't enclosed aqueducts. They would be polluted. They would become impure. And by the time they came to the city, they were warm. They were lukewarm, and they would have an almost emetic effect on people. I thought that was my one big word I wanted to use today. Okay? An emetic effect literally means that to the right people you would drink it and it would make you vomit. And Jesus says, I wish that you were cold or hot, but you are lukewarm, and I'm about to spit you out of this out of my mouth. The same exact imagery that they understood. If I drink this water, I will throw up. And that's the imagery that Jesus puts to this church. I want you to be extreme in your faith. Interestingly enough, on the other side of the city was a Herapolis, which was known for its thermal hot springs. It could bring healing and comfort to the achy bones and joints. And Jesus is taking these places and turning them into analogies for them to understand. Once again... Even from his glory, he is telling a parable, a story. He says, hey, you're not providing refreshment for the spiritual weary. You're not even providing healing for the spiritually sick. Most commentaries, the best definition they give you for lukewarm, the interpretation is this. And I looked at two, and I didn't like theirs, so I looked at another one and didn't like it, because it was, gave me the same one as the first two. looked at a fourth one, and it was like, okay, they're all saying the same thing. But literally, the word used there for lukewarm is this idea that Jesus is saying the church was ineffective. Folks, no one wants to have a speaker come and talk to them about being an ineffective church. You're not doing ministry. You're not reaching people. You're not loving people. You're not caring about people. You're only caring about yourself. That you're so inward focused that you're doing no outward good. That's what Jesus is saying. You're ineffective. So many times we take this as, hey, he doesn't want you to be cold because that's as far away from God. He wants you to be on fire for Jesus. No, 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 no. He wants you to be extreme. Why? Because when we're extreme, we create something great. Magnificent things happen. Incredible things happen. He wants us to become a difference maker in the lives of those around us. We're called to be more than average. I don't think that Jesus uses analogies because he didn't want to drive home the point. He uses analogies to do just that, to drive home the point. And he calls us to do more than that to be more than just the people that sit on middle ground. Yes, to bring refreshment. But yes, to bring spiritual healing. The church at Laodicea was lukewarm at best. It was basically saying they were good for nothing. I heard it said one time that the definition of average is the, the worst of the best and the best of the worst. That's not where I want to be. I don't think that's where God wants his church to be either. One of my favorite books, and I know Daryl's read it too, is called An Enemy Called Average. It's thin. I may like it because like every chapter is one page. Yes. Okay. Read it really quick. I read an old chapter today in my book. Yeah. Okay. All three minutes that it took me to read that. I love that book. But it's written by a preacher to a business world with this idea of thinking beyond, to think big. And woven throughout that book, he uses scripture and godly principles to help business people to realize that they can think big, that the enemy is average. So don't be average. You and I can't change the world without Jesus. We can't. It's not going to happen. We can't really be extreme without Jesus because he's who gives us our power and our might. So you and I are called to be beyond average, to be extreme. And then we see this warning. As if the problem wasn't bad enough, then there's this warning that really just cuts to the core. Remember who these people are. We'll talk about that in a minute. They were selfish. They were arrogant. They were rich beyond measure. They thought they had it all. And we see here in verse 17 and 18 these words For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. This rich, arrogant society, this church that sat in the middle of it, that was seduced by the world around them, had become everything that God did not want them to be. They were wretched. And I don't know that anyone wants to be called that. They thought they were all that. They were the worst of all these churches. They were pitiable. Why would anybody pity someone who has it all? Oh, you can't pity me. They were poor. They were rich. In AD 60, when the town was destroyed, they didn't ask for any help whatsoever to rebuild the city, not from the Romans, not from the Greeks. They had, we have the money, we have the finances, we have the resources. We'll do it ourselves. They had it all. They thought they were rich. Compared to the church at Smyrna, if you remember backing back at that church, that endured persecution and poverty, what does Jesus do in chapter 2, verse 9? He calls them rich. They were blind in the midst of having one of the most renowned medical centers in the middle. They were naked in a land where textiles was a main export. They thought they were special because they had everything. It doesn't matter what they have. It only matters who you are. And the church had been literally taken over by these thoughts of the world. As I look at the American church today, I kind of wonder if that's where we are. We think we have it all. We're sending missionaries out in the mission field. We're changing the world We need to understand that the missionaries outside of this world, the churches outside of this world, look at America as the the last great mission field. They are sending missionaries here because they feel that we're so far gone. The church in America needs to do what God wants us to do. We need to be the church that God wants us to be. They'd be refined. They're supposed to buy refined gold. Purified by fire. They're going to go through trials. They're going to go through pain. They're going to go through persecution. They're going to go through service. The only way they could find real riches was to endure poverty. They were finding their wealth in all the wrong places. They were making their investments in all the wrong places instead of vesting into the kingdom of God. Jesus said, don't build up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but build up for yourself treasures in heaven. He told them to buy white garments. Their main textile in that area was a black wool that could could only be found in that area. When it was spun just right, they said it was almost like silk. It was very, very expensive. And they were known for this black wool. And Jesus says, no, 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 I don't care. You need to buy white garments, exactly opposite of what they were known for, pure, whole, true, symbols of purity like refined gold, to cover their shame, to cover their sinfulness, to cover their nakedness. We're told in Galatians 26 and 27, so in Jesus Christ, you who are all children of God through faith, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with with Christ, with white garments, with purity. You clothe yourself in Jesus. And then they were to buy ISAF. You know what the main product of the medical center was? It was ISAF. They weren't told to buy that ISAF. This Phrygian powder, I like that name, say that ten times fast. It was made from a local soul. It was a remedy for weak eyes. No, 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 no. that's not what I'm talking about. You need to buy that which will make you truly see. There's an old hymn. You may remember it. It says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Oh, here's the word. Like me. I once was, was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It is in these words from the book of Revelation that we see the song because it's speaking to us in so many ways. The call, and I don't want to lose this because we're short on time. The call is this in verse 19, that those whom I love I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. I want you to think about this, those whom I love. With everything else that Jesus said to this church, with everything else, whether hot or cold, he still loves them. No matter what you and I have done in in our life, Jesus still loves us. Mark Batterson in his book, Play the Man, says it this way, the reality is this, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less than he already does. God loves you. John 3, 16, for God so, so, that word is so significant because he so loved the world. He didn't give up on us. Yes, he may rebuke us. Yes, he corrects us. But he still loves us in the same way that you love your children. To be zealous and repent. A call to change the heart, what's on the inside. David is in an affair with Bathsheba. When confronted by the prophet Nathan, because of his sin, what did he do? He fell to his knees and he repented. Psalm fifty-one, eleven and twelve: Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your holy spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. David beckons to God on his knees: Please restore my heart. And that's exactly what God and what Jesus is calling the church to do: to be zealous, to turn away from this indifferency and to change the world by being extreme, to change the heart. Larry Crabb said it this way one time, that the core problem is not that we're too passionate about bad things, but that we're not passionate enough about the good things in life. And I don't want to forget Revelation 3, 20 and 21. In the midst of this harsh rebuke, we see probably the most beautiful the most beautiful invitation ever offered. and I want to make sure you understand this. This is not to the world. This is an invitation to the church. Remember, the letter is written to the church. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will eat with me. Eat with him and he with me. Jesus is standing outside the door, knocking at the door. And he's asking the church, would you just let me back in? I want to be part of your life. I want to be part of your ministry. I want to be part of your heart. So that you can take me into the world and change the world. It's fascinating if you look at scriptures and you look at many of the pictures of of this story where Jesus is standing at the door and knocking You'll see that there's not even a doorknob on the outside of the door. There you go, look at that. Even Siri heard me, okay? But I want you to think about that. There's not even a doorknob on the outside. Why? Because we have to open the door to Him. We're the only religion in the world where Jesus is seeking a relationship with His people. Every other other religion in the world, people are seeking their God. Jesus is seeking us. That's called love. Why is it the claim of thrones? It's right here in 21. I can't give you any better description. We have talked about this over and over throughout this whole text that you and I are called to be overcomers. It's right here, and then I will be done. As soon as I find it in this little print. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with him on my throne. And I also conquered and sat down with the Father on my throne. To the overcomer, is what the NIV says. I will give him a right to have a claim of my throne. You and I, when we overcome, when we believe, when we know, when we accept Christ in our life, and when we live that life for him, we have a claim to the throne. I don't know about you, but if you go out of here and you're not excited today, man, I tell you, I, you need to drink some caffeine. That's all I can tell you. Yes, it sounds terrible. Yes, we need to be hot or cold. Yes, there's all these problems in the church. But there is a hope beyond hopes because Jesus says, when you overcome, when you overcome, you will receive the throne. Man, that is what it's all about, folks. There is hope beyond hope. There's hope for the church. That's you and I. There's hope for the world because you and I are going to go out and share the message of Jesus. And we're going to share that hope with the world. Yeah, I'm getting a little preachy today, but to me, this is one of my favorite passages of all scriptures. Because it is all about overcoming. It is all about Jesus. And our lives should be about that. Maybe you have a decision to make today. A decision to say, hey, I want to be an overcomer. Sign me up. I want to be on that throne. I want to be with him. You have that chance. You also have a chance right where you are to say, God, you need to renew my heart. I need to open myself up just like King David, and I need to let you in. Restore the joy of my salvation. Let's do that today as we pray. Let's stand. Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the reminder that you and I are called to love just like you have loved. Help us not to sit in the middle, but to be extreme in our faith, to talk to those who are less fortunate, to talk to those who are very fortunate, to talk to everyone in between Lord, that we can just share the message of Jesus, the hope that he gives the world. Thank you for this promise. And if we got nothing else out of this whole series, that we can understand this one thing that we can overcome because of you In your name.